You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We'd like to thank our friends at ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast. I'll tell you more about this great company later, but first, let's meet our guests. So we're joined today by Jason Fagoni, who's a journalist who covers science, technology, and culture. He was named one of the 10 young writers on the rise by the Columbia Journalism Review. And he's a contributor to the Huffington Post Highline and has written for GQ, Esquire, The Atlantic, The New York Times, Mother Jones, Philadelphia Magazine, and others. He's also the author of Ingenious, A True Story of Invention, The X Prize, and The Race to Revive America. And what has to be in my top five list of greatest titles of all time, Horseman of the Esophagus, Competitive Eating and the Big Fat American Dream. His newest book is The Women Woman, sorry. His newest book is The Woman Who Smashed Codes, a true story of love, spies, and unlikely heroine who outwitted America's enemies. Welcome, Jason. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. I'm glad. Thank you for having me, Vince. Yeah, that book, uh, author's dreams that come up with kind of <laughs> pun that is. So I've uh, I've gotten a couple of questions lately about like how did I make the leap from Horseman of the Esophagus <laughs> writing about competitive eating to writing about. Uh, Code breaking, and there there is no link. There, there's just there's no link. It's it, just me. It just happened. I mean, I often ask authors about the inspiration for the book, partly because it makes for a good icebreaker to start a conversation. Yeah. Partly because we have listeners who are either budding authors or established authors, and it's in the processes of successful authors is always good to hear. But I also rarely read the promotional material sent by publishing companies that get you know sent with the books when they send them to yeah, us. Yeah. In this case, I'm actually glad I did because. The story of your early inspiration for this book is really great. You know, you being on an airplane. And can oh, you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Because that, that to me, really sets the story in a context that I want to go after. Sure. So about three years ago, I was on a uh, Delta flight with my wife and daughter. Um, she was six. Uh, just a normal uh, Delta flight. I um, am pretty tall, and so I'm usually uncomfortable on planes, so I was uh, not having a good time 
uh, flight was dragging on, and um, the stewardess came by and offered my daughter a uh, special drink. She asked her if she would like a, uh, um, a Sky Princess, which I had never heard of before, but it was a, uh, uh, it's a mixture of cranberry juice and ginger ale. So she pours this for my daughter, and my daughter starts to drink it. She's, she's enjoying it, looks, and it looks really good to me. I'm, I'm tired. I'm you know, uncomfortable. I want one of these <laughs> drinks. I want a Sky Princess. And so I, I say to the stewardess, can I, can I have a Sky Princess too? And she looks at me, and she says, oh, no, no, no. For boys, it's called a Sky Pilot. And uh, my wife next to me, like, sort of jabbed me in the, <laughs> jabbed me in the side <laughs> with her elbow, like, really hard. Um, and... Uh, and I started thinking about that, and I thought, um, you know, I, for, number one, it's the same drink, right, for a boy or a girl. And number two, um, I, I think as a father, you start to think about uh, maybe with a heightened sensitivity the kinds of the kinds of small messages that girls get sent uh, as they move through the world. And um, you know, stewardess not meaning to do anything bad, but it's one of hundreds of little messages that get sent like that. And I, and I started to think. Um, I just started to think that I should try to write a book that my daughter would be able to read someday and, and be inspired by. So that kind of pushed me toward a direction of looking for, um, looking for a cool story of a woman pioneer. Uh, my wife is in tech and, uh, she goes to the Grace Hopper conference every year. Um, she told me a little bit about who Grace Hopper was. So I started looking into women, uh, technologists, women technology pioneers, and um, around that same time was when the Edward Snowden story broke. And so um, I started reading about the history of NSA. I think like a lot of Americans, I, I really didn't know much about NSA. Mm -hmm. So I was reading about NSA, where this, where this agency came from. When you read about NSA, all roads lead to William Friedman. Right. You know, godfather of the NSA. I don't have to tell anybody who listens to this uh, podcast who William Friedman is or what he means. But... Um, you know, I, I happened to read in reading about William Friedman that uh, that he had a wife and she was also a code breaker. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Husband and wife, code breaker. Um, and I started looking for more information. I assumed there had to be a book, but there was no book about Elizabeth. And so all of these things kind of came together um, to motivate me to find out more about uh, Elizabeth Friedman. And that's when the story started to unfold. Yeah. And there are times as a historian where we get really lucky and stumble onto something that no one else has seen or cared to see, or they did see it but didn't know what it meant. And I imagine things might be similar for journalists in this case, where you know the case for Elizabeth Friedman, you, you set out to find information and then you stumble onto just heaps of this stuff that no one had paid any attention to before. Right. Well, Vince, have you had a moment in an archive where you just you came across a document oh, yeah. and you just wanted to like cry out <laughs> in excitement? Um, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of moments for me... Uh, like that during the reporting of this. I mean, usually you can't make any kind of loud noise in an archive because there are other people right next to you who are doing their own research. They would be upset. But, um, but yeah, the first day that I started reading Elizabeth's uh, papers was like that. So Elizabeth left 22 boxes of her um, personal letters, diaries, original code worksheets to the George Marshall Foundation in Lexington, Virginia. The Marshall also has William Friedman's collection, which is larger. But I think um, a lot of historians who have gone to the Marshall over, over the years have gone there to look at William's stuff. It's a rare thing for somebody to go there and ask to see Elizabeth's collection. 
And that's what they told me when I went there. It's, it's, they, they, they said that um, sometimes they, they suggest to people, uh, you should really look at William's stu- uh, Elizabeth's stuff, and, um, and they don't have as much luck. Part of, part of the problem is that uh, Elizabeth's collection is not indexed. It's not right. annotated because she really uh, – she only annotated William's stuff. Right. She took the time to annotate William's stuff yeah. on her own. Yeah. Uh, partly probably out of modesty, partly out of a sense of duty to him. Um, but uh, there's no really guide to what's in those 22 boxes. If you want to know what's in there, you have to go through every box from start to finish. But, uh, but yeah, it was that experience of, of going there for the first time, being led back into the vault where the 22 boxes are, requesting box one, looking right. at box one, file one, and then, you know, very quickly realizing um, that here was an untold story uh, that really deserved to be told. And, you know, Elizabeth was, like William, a pack rat. You know, she kept every piece of paper that passed through her hands that was not classified. And so anything that you could want as a journalist, a historian, a biographer is, is, is in those files or most anything, you know, um, going back to the earliest love letters that she wrote to William before they were even married. I mean, it was just wonderful stuff. And I was, I was, uh, I was completely captivated. Well, I mean, as we know now, I mean, thankfully a lot of reason because of your book, but also, uh, because there's been some changes of late about bringing her back, uh, you know, out of the shadows, she, she of course is one of the greatest codebreakers of all time. She almost wasn't one to begin with. I mean, she was kind of an accidental codebreaker in many respects. She she almost went back home after being unable to find a job in Chicago, but just so happened it's one of these moments, right? Where yeah. what if she hadn't gone into the Newberry Library in Chicago and just said, "Nah, I'm just going to go home." I mean, one of these twists of fate that just defined history for all of us moving forward for the almost next hundred years she always called her career an accident first person article that she wrote about uh her life as a code breaker was titled pure accident and and it's really true that's how that's how it began so uh one of these classic american tales a young girl from a small town is bored with her life she wants something more uh it was 1916 elizabeth was 23 years old she was working as a school teacher, which is which is essentially what a bright uh, right. young woman did. Yeah, basically, all they could do. It was all. It was the end of the line. Right. You know, if you had uh, an education at a liberal arts university in nineteen, you know, fifteen, nineteen sixteen, you became a school teacher, uh, not a college teacher. You taught, you know, grade school, and that's what Elizabeth was doing in a, in a in a tiny town in Indiana. That was very much like the tiny town where she grew up, and she just got sick of it and quit her job. She decided that she wanted. Um, something more unusual so she lit out for the big city she took a train to chicago and um she looked for a job for about a week week and a half had zero luck finally she was about to give up and uh, go back home live with her parents and she decided before she was going home she wanted to uh, see a rare book of shakespeare that was held at the newberry library it was a private library for rich people essentially elizabeth wasn't rich she went to the library anyway and uh, she started to examine this 1623 edition of Shakespeare's plays, the first folio. As she was looking at this book, the librarian noticed that she was interested in Shakespeare. Elizabeth had studied Shakespeare in, in college. When the libra- librarian uh, struck up a conversation and said, you know, there's this crazy rich guy <laughs> who keeps coming to the library looking at that Shakespeare book. And um, he, he's convinced that there are secret messages inside it. 
um, and he, he said that he was looking to hire a research assistant. Would you be interested in, in that sort of job? And Elizabeth said, well, yeah, maybe. Librarian said, should I, should I call him up? Elizabeth said, you know, okay, thinking that it would take uh, weeks. Uh, within an hour, this crazy rich guy comes to the Newberry Library to pick Elizabeth up in his chauffeured limousine and essentially um, it, it takes her by the elbow walks her out to the limo and whisks her away to uh, his private estate on the Illinois prairie that is like half a rich man's paradise and half a bizarre scientific laboratory. It was called Riverbank, and that's kind of how her career in, in code-breaking began. And for those out there, the Riverbank, some of you may ring a bell. I mean, it's kind of you know, the mecca, the kind of the founding uh, organization of American code-breaking. Um, but for others, you, you do describe it pretty well, right? It's, it's bringing together not just code people. It's all sorts of different scientists who were being funded by this wacky rich dude. Yeah. He, so he, in, in a lot of ways, George Fabian was very much like uh, the wealthy men of, of the Gilded Age, people like Andrew Carnegie or William Randolph Hearst. Um, the difference is that Fabian didn't spend his money on like building a huge castle like Hearst did, or, or he didn't spend his money on uh, collecting French Impressionist paintings like Carnegie did. Instead, he spent his money on science and scientific laboratories and scientific experiments. Um, he wanted to discover the secrets of nature. And over a period of about a decade, he transformed his uh, estate, this Riverbank estate, into uh, an impressive private scientific laboratory like uh, some of the private labs of his day, Thomas Edison's Menlo Park or uh, Nikola Tesla's lab on, on Long Island. And so, um, so Riverbank really was uh, like Thomas Edison's Menlo Park Laboratory or Nikola Tesla's uh, laboratory in New York, um, or at least part of it was. It was really kind of like a fusion of, um, you know, rich man's playground and uh, scientific ambition. So you would have all of the classic rich guy stuff. You would have, you know famous people coming to uh, have huge lavish dinners with George Fabian you know Teddy Roosevelt sat at his table Lily Langtree and Billy Burke Flo Zigfield some of the famous sort of uh, actors and actresses and producers of the day would just go there to hang out because they were all part of the same sort of wealthy class but then you would also have um, you know the leading uh, acoustical investigator in the, in the United States had a lab there you would also have somebody like uh, William Friedman young and talented uh, geneticist who was there and, and, uh, and then you had this group of you know, uh, literature scholars that Elizabeth was a part of uh, who were investigating these supposedly secret messages embedded in Shakespeare. And you mentioned William Friedman was a geneticist, but eventually got a little bored with what he was doing and was recruited. I don't know if you can say because he was interested in Elizabeth or because he was interested in the work. One way or another, he was recruited into looking at some of the codes in Shakespeare, and they found they worked exceptionally well together. Even before there was any kind of romantic involvement, there was just this kind of personal, professional coming together of like minds that just would work together great for decades following. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they they started writing to each other before they were ever romantically involved. And those letters are in the Marshall Foundation. It is amazing to read 
you know, these love letters a hundred years later. Like, I would be in the Marshall and, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, you know, I would spend eight hours there looking at the letters. At the end of the day, I would send my wife, you know, a, a text. It would be like, I, you know, I love you. With like, you know, a love emoji. <laughs> it's just like, so, it's so lame. Right. It's so pathetic and lame. They just wrote better love letters a hundred years ago. And, um, and they wrote to each other when they were just friends. But even then, they had this um, very obvious and, and beautiful bond on the page. And, and, uh, and in real life, sitting across the table from each other, you know, in the pre-computer era, um, solving these puzzles together. They, they, were, they, were the, they were two young people who were very ambitious, I think. And they, they wanted to accomplish great things. And I think they saw that ambition in each other. They wanted to uh, leave a mark. And they talked about that. And as they fell in love... Um, their letters grew more intimate, and uh, within a year they were married. And you, you mentioned at the beginning the time period we're talking about here is is when the rest of the world is fighting a war in World War One, and soon after, relatively soon after Elizabeth arrives at Riverbank, the United States is pulled into the war. And this is not a situation like it is today, where there are tens of thousands of people working on signals intelligence and, and cryptology. Right. We're really talking about a handful, count on, like literally count on one hand, yes. kind of handful of people who understood codes and cybers in the United States, and two of them were <laughs> William and Elizabeth Friedman. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I found really surprising. I mean, uh, you and the people listening to this show um, already know this, but for me, it, 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 it was a shock to see how uh, tiny and kind of unprepared the intelligence community was at, at the dawn of uh, World War One. I. I mean, you couldn't even really call it an intelligence community. Right. I mean, there was no, no NSA, obviously, no CIA. FBI was about eight years old. Really just a shadow of its future self. And, um, uh, you know, there was no uh, trained core of codebreakers. There was only these weirdos <laughs> looking at Shakespeare texts out in the middle of the Illinois prairie. Uh, well, and for the first almost year of the war... Really, William and Elizabeth and their team did all the code breaking for the entirety of the U.S. government. It wasn't like they were just doing bits and pieces of it. They were it. That, they were it. It was, it was every agency would send their stuff out to Riverbank. Uh, you know, Army, uh, Department of Justice, um, all, of the, uh, all of the different arms of government that needed secret messages solved. They uh, would funnel it out to the prairie, out to Riverbank, and uh, the answers would come back. And people may wonder why have Riverbank Labs be like kind of the central point of U.S. code breaking, but it's not that the government didn't try to bring at least William Friedman in and make him an official part of the establishment. Right. Fabian wasn't even, was blocking the correspondence and not allowing them to even leave. Right. George Fabian was uh, a lunatic. He was an, <laughs> an insane person. Uh, you know, his insanity probably masked by his power and his wealth. You know, he was, he was the kind of person who just had so much money that he could build a kind of kingdom around, around himself. And, um, and he was also a very large uh, and forceful and scary guy. He was 240 pounds, uh, you know, six foot four, big iron gray beard. Um, people were afraid to say no to him, and um, and he was also very charming and persuasive. And so he managed to build this little empire uh, out on the prairie, build up this code breaking team, 
Uh, and it was a combination, really, of, of American desperation, the fact that there, there wasn't already uh, a core of trained codebreakers, and also sort of Fabian's just forcefulness and, and uh, charm that allowed him to gain so much power and so much control over the American uh, codebreaking world. Well, and now the, the, the kind of the, the center point of American codebreaking is out in the middle of nowhere. The government's really forced to send not only codes to be broken there, but also anyone that needs to be trained. And so Riverbank Labs becomes now not only a center point of U.S. codebreaking, but also a center training school for the next generation of American codebreakers. That's right. Uh, and again, you know, the, the government didn't like doing this. They, they, they were very uneasy about George Fabian, you know, but they, uh, they didn't really have a choice because it was war. And so you're right. They started sending uh, uh, bright, young army uh, officers out to Illinois to learn the um, learn the basics of codes and ciphers from Elizabeth and William. The, I think the the, were, the first four were sent out in November 1917, mm-hmm. and then uh, that was followed by an entire class of uh, of army officers, uh, as many as 80 officers, um, who were who were put up in a hotel in Aurora, Illinois. A lot of them brought their wives and. Uh, for these army officers, it was uh, it was like living in paradise before they were about to be deployed. Right. You know, it's like they're out they're out in the farmland. Um, Fabian, uh, you know, would serve these lavish dinners with uh, sort of freshly slaughtered hogs and chickens from the, the farm out there, and um, you know, it was uh, it was a respite. And uh, and and Elizabeth and William were uh, teaching these classes, and it's incredible to think about because they were so young. You know, right. they were they're really just in their in their early to mid twenties. And had only learned about code breaking, you know, 1915, 1916. But all of a sudden, they were that they were the experts. That Elizabeth always said that uh, we had to become the students and the teachers at the same time because the the timeline was just so com- compressed. Well, William was eventually able to escape, for lack of a better word, uh, and was deployed uh, to France. Actually, as part of the military, is this where we kind of see? the differences and the way people thought about them begin to diverge because his reputation skyrockets and she's still back at Riverbank Labs and you kind of see them going in different directions when it comes to who knows William versus who knows Elizabeth. Right. So William uh, had been wanting to serve, to go to France. He had been bugging George Fabian uh, for permission to do so. Fabian had denied him at first, and uh, ultimately William made such a, a stink about it that Fabian allowed him to go. Um, he, he developed a, uh, you know, a bulletproof reputation serving with the AEF um, in their code section. Uh, you know, superior officers would, would come over to his table and he would be introduced as the wizard of codes. Um, and part of that was because um, some of his earliest publications were beginning to, to come out at that point, the, the Riverbank publications, mm-hmm. which I guess people listening to this will, will know. Well, if they don't, um, when we open our new museum next year, we have William Friedman's personal copy of one of those Riverbank oh my gosh. publications. So, uh, well, I, actually, I want to ask about the publications. Yeah. I mean, uh, we also have their book plates, which are fantastic. Oh, I love the book plate. I love the book plate. Um, the publications themselves, she was just as important for making those publications as he was, but he's given essentially the sole author credit, well, other than Fabian, who has to find his way onto everything. But everyone up until very recently thought, well, yeah, William Friedman wrote 
all the Riverbank Labs pubs, but she was essentially right. a co-author on everything. Absolutely. Yeah, he, he, he calls them our publications in letters that he writes to Elizabeth from France. He considers them to be their, uh, their dual work. Um, and uh, the case, I think, is proven by uh, the records of the Riverbank Cipher Division that are now at the New York Public Library. So um, there, there's about 20 to 30 boxes of stuff from the earliest days of, of Riverbank at the, at the New York Public Library. It's not really sorted. But I, I went and I dug through these boxes for a couple of days, and it turns out that the, the earliest drafts of the Riverbank publications are there. And guess what? Both of their handwriting is all over them, you know. So, so you have typescripts of these of of uh, what would become the Riverbank publications, and um, you know Elizabeth's handwriting is uh, is making editing marks, and then and then William's handwriting is making editing marks. Sometimes you see in the typescripts um, that Elizabeth will write a section and she'll put her name, and then William will write a section and put and put his name. They're editing each other, but when these things get published by uh, George Fabian's press. All of all of that information gets uh, blotted out, and it just becomes uh, William's work somehow. And so, um, I think part of that is just the time. I think Elizabeth, as the wife, was expected to support right. the husband for his the development of his reputation, and um, and I think it's also her modesty. You know, she was uh, modest to the point of self abnegation. You know, but the a lot of you know the famous. Um, the famous early papers, the running key paper, um, you know, she she said at the time, and he did too, that that was that was both of their work. But I think that uh, of the eight of the eight papers, she was involved in um, the majority of them. We'll have more with Jason in just one minute, but let me take a moment to tell you about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you before, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups, and realized the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. But what if hiring could be easier, more streamlined, and less time-consuming? So even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying quality candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. And this is a really cool concept. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates. So you don't have to waste time sorting through a stack of resumes to find the perfect fit. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish all in one place. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. One more time to try it free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The United States wasn't involved in World War One for all that long, you know, so there wasn't a chance to really get a huge thing going. And, and of course, during the interwar period, as many people know, both the United States military and our defense sector altogether essentially collapses. Um, and, and although U.S. code breaking wasn't 
terrible during the war, it basically disappears in the interwar period. Um, in the book, you, you chalk this up a lot to the rise of the machines, kind of, kind of you know, the end of pencil and paper code breaking. Is, is, is this based on, on what you researched and what you experienced? You really kind of put this as the, the primary reason that U.S. code breaking and people like these small labs like Elizabeth and William Friedman um, aren't able to continue the growth that they've established during the war? What is the sort of consensus view of that? Because I'm not a historian. I, I'm yeah, not no, sure that I, I know what, like, what sort of the <laughs> conventional wisdom on that is. I mean, you know, it, it's certainly there's economics involved in this as well. I mean, there's uh, reasons not to keep the high levels of, uh, you know, money going to national security, particularly code breaking. Um, you, you see it more as um, a bit of a, a balkanization of American national security, especially code breaking side where things are broken down into small shops. Right. Uh, you know Herbert Yardley in the State Department's a great example of this. You mm-hmm. know, there's no there's no NSA that brings together right. all of these different areas, and so everyone's kind of dealing with their own little fiefdom. My um, sense of it was it was mainly that the urgency of war went away, and so people kind of scattered to the winds. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's. Uh, I think that's. I mean, that's that not, squares with. It does, and I, and I think that the you know not only. Do you have the urgency of war going away, but you have a technological change where people are playing catch up on the right. code breaking side? Right. Um, you know, and, and it takes time. It's a dramatic. People don't realize the kind of the revolutionary change that machine ciphers played. Um, uh, well, absolutely. And and when you when you look at the early days of of William playing with cipher machines, it, it was pretty clear to me, at least, that he 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 didn't understand the future impact. Of what he was discovering, he was he was playing with them because they were, they were an interesting puzzle, an interesting challenge. But all of the seeds of um, the the big code breaking successes in World War II, you know, were laid in the twenties when he first started sort of tinkering around with the right. Heburn um, and with the Kryha and all of the famous stories about how he, you know, was staring at the Heburn for three weeks, completely insensate, you know, not able to uh, not able to go out in public and just consumed by it. And then all of a sudden he's uh, he's getting dressed for a party one night with Elizabeth and uh, the solution comes to him. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he had plenty of work during the interwar period, even though the war wasn't happening. There was right. plenty of work there. Um, and, you know, it, I guess it's because of the times, Elizabeth kind of picked up the stuff he couldn't do. Well, people would, come, people would come to him first, right? Yeah. They, would, they, would, uh, they would ask William to solve a problem or to come work on a job. Uh, but he already had a job. And so they would go to Elizabeth. They re, they, the reasoning was that they would try to use William's brain secondhand. Mm-hmm. That's what she always said. They were trying to they were trying to get his brain. They were trying to get access to his brain through me. Um, she kind of resented that, but at the same time, um, I think she liked proving that she was a master code breaker in, in her own right. And what would happen is very quickly after. Uh, after people from the government came to her and asked her to solve problems, she would prove her mettle. Right. And then, and then any question of, you know, whether she was, uh, you know, uh, less good than William or, 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 or anything like that would, would, would go away because she was just cranking through these, uh, these puzzles. And it's important, again, to understand the context of the times. I mean, this is, this is around the time women's suffrage was getting passed. I mean, the 19th Amendment, this is not when 
this is not the it's 1960s sexual revolution. This is time when women were not doing much of anything outside of the house. And the ultimate end point to this was that Elizabeth gets a pretty extraordinary job working for the United States Coast Guard. Right. Well, she she didn't intend this. Again, this is another accidental thing in her life, in her career, right? But, um, you know, 1925, a man in Coast Guard uniform shows up on her doorstep, uh, Charles Root, and asks her to help with the rum war. The Coast Guard is completely lost in trying to fight uh, bootlegging. And, uh, you know, they, they can't break the codes that the bootleggers are using to protect their uh, illegal rum operations. So the bootleggers very quickly figure out how to, um, you know, encrypt messages, shortwave radios on boats, they set up pirate radio stations on shore, and they would exchange messages um, and, and elude the Coast Guard, which was uh, overmatched and unprepared. And so they... They showed up on Elizabeth's door. I mean, this is what she said all her life. This is was her complaint is that men from the government show up on my doorstep uh, asking me to do these things. And the only way to make them go away is to say yes. <laughs> and the problem for Elizabeth is just that, you know, I mean, at that point, she was uh, she had just given birth to the Freedman's first child. She was uh, writing children's books, which was a lifelong ambition of hers. And uh, she didn't necessarily have any intent on going back to government, but she was just so good at what she did and her skills were so still so rare right uh, that she she kept on being indispensable and so men from the government you know continued to show up on her door all through her career well the coast guard at the time was uniquely qualified and even more so than the navy or the army to do this job I mean, they basically had the largest array of radio right. detection systems along the coast, mainly because of search and rescue operations and everything else. Right. And so this age of radio that had just wireless, that had been kind of figured out during World War One, and, and how important it was to intercept communications, had really put the Coast Guard in a position to be prominent in these kind of operations. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the Coast Guard had to be able to save a ship in a storm. Uh, and for that, they needed a radio. So Coast Guard ha- was way ahead of the Navy and any other agency in terms of radio infrastructure. They had uh, listening stations on the coast, intercept stations. And so they had a source of intercepts, which, uh, as, as people listening to this will know, uh, is very important for any kind of, any kind of code-breaking operation at scale. You need a, you need a ready source of intercepts. Uh, and the Coast Guard had that. You know, they had the intercepts, but the problem was they didn't have the code breaking right. until Elizabeth. And so Elizabeth comes in, you know, and she starts to um, break these codes and solve these messages and distribute decrypts throughout the U.S. Treasury network. And Treasury at that point, this is another thing that I didn't realize, Treasury was essentially like an intelligence community all its own. Um, you know, had multiple law enforcement agencies within it that were able to share information, narcotics, prohibition, Coast Guard, IRS. And, um, and Elizabeth became kind of the nexus uh, of a lot of these different agencies. She was the, the point of contact for all kinds of investigations. Eventually, she became known as the key woman of the T-Men, you know, T-Man being kind of colloquial for a right. treasury agent it's sort of analogous to the g-man G-Man. of the fbi yep. it's important to emphasize that we're not talking about elizabeth here as a representative of a large team 
of people doing things. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. Elizabeth did this, and you're really talking about the 30 people that Elizabeth right. was running. No, no, this no. is literally <laughs> Elizabeth did this because yeah. it was her and another, like, a typing clerk. Yeah. Well, well, at first, at first, for the first couple of years when she was working for Treasury, she she didn't even have an office there. She would uh, she was a freelancer. She would go in and pick up an envelope uh, full of messages, and she would bring the envelope back uh, when they were solved. Um, you know, toward the end of the 1920s, until 1931, uh, she, it was just her and a single clerk typist, and they were dealing with you know more than 12,000 messages a year. Um, you know, and, again, and by themselves, by themselves, and it just the you know thinking about that, I, uh, reading the documents in the Marshall Library, just just quantifying the work that she did. You know, it's just a, a, a flood of paper. Just thinking about all of the paper and keeping track of um, the messages in dozens of different crypto systems for all of the different rum syndicates that had their their own codes um and their own geographic areas of operation i mean there was one memo where elizabeth was talking about you know they would she, they would generate um you know stacks of decrypts and when the stack of solutions got to be an inch thick they would bind it into a bound volume and uh by 1931 they had created 30 of these bound volumes of just rum runners talking to each other uh, incredible amount of physical work, patience, uh, dedication, time involved, and and it wasn't until 1931 when um, you know she finally got some some help, and the ca- the cavalry came a little bit, and she she was allowed to launch her own code breaking team. And run run runner sounds a little quaint, but this is not Bo and Luke Duke and the General Lee driving moonshine in the back. This is like Al Capone's crews. Yeah, yeah. And people at that level, they're murdering people. They're the, in the first couple of years. Yeah. This is this is something that uh, this book completely obliterated my image of rum running and what that was. The first couple of years of of prohibition, it it really was kind of gentleman rum rum yeah. runners. You know, and the, you would have a guy in Florida who had a fast boat, and he would make the run to uh, the Bahamas and and run the rum back. Um, but uh, the organized crime uh, forced all those guys out of the business. So uh, by 1924 and 1925, it was just gangsters. And it was just really ruthless, mm-hmm. ruthless guys. And also the kinds of large, faceless corporations uh, that, were, that were difficult to track. You know, her, her, her primary nemesis for a lot of the, the rum years was this uh, criminal syndicate operating out of Vancouver, called the Consolidated Exporters Corporation. Brilliant sort of intentionally generic name. Right, it sounds like something. It's, uh, yeah, it's whatever. It's boring stuff. Yeah. No, this was, this, was a, this was one of the largest criminal gangs in the world. Um, Joseph Kennedy, JFK's father, was an investor in Consolidated Exporters Corporation. They had um, more than 60 different dedicated rum vessels that completely spanned the globe. It was... Um, it was breathtaking in scope, and um, and Elizabeth spent a lot of her time tracking the consolidated boats and uh, ultimately testifying against more than 20 right. of their agents in, in court. Well, because it's law enforcement. This is not an intelligence operation, you know, on its face. She was involved in a lot of, of court cases that were publicly open. I thought what was interesting was the media coverage of her in the court. At one hand, it was incredibly you know, praise. Well, I mean, it was, you know, this woman breaks everything, whatever, but it was underhanded 
condescension and chauvinism shoved in all at once. Right. It was kind of the back, you know, kind of patchy on the back <laughs> while kicking in the ass at the same time. I mean, it was unbelievable yeah. how obnoxious. I mean, well, it was, well, the tone of it was kind of like, look how amazing it is that a woman was yeah. able to do. That. <laughs> you know, it's like one of those one of the subheads in the clips from uh, from one of her court cases is, was just like instantly iconic to me. The second I saw it, I just I took a picture of it and I sent it to everybody I knew. And, I, and this the little subhead in, in the newspaper article was solved by woman. <laughs> I almost called the book "Solved by Woman" because it was, it just spoke to me so powerfully of that of that moment. And yes, um, you know, she was irresistible to reporters uh, for a lot of reasons that you can understand. I mean, uh, she she was described in news articles as you know a pretty little woman who protects the United States, uh, a pretty woman in a frilly pink dress. Um, there was a lot of condescension. On the other hand, she was a big story. She was a legitimate story. She was she was testifying in these major court cases against large criminal gangs, completely out in the open. She would she would sit on the witness stand, and a lot of what she did was just explain what cryptanalysis mm-hmm. was to juries. Right, and, you know, people did not understand it, and so she had to break it down into parts. And try to explain um, in a very sort of direct and simple way what it was that she did when she was breaking code so that juries would believe that she was telling the truth. I'd love to see this dramatized, just the banter between the defense attorneys for these scumbag gangsters trying to trip her up on cross-examination. It's like... Give me a chalkboard. Just give, give me something to write on, and then just. You know, oh yeah, there's, there, well, there's a famous instance yeah. from 1934 um, where she was she was involved uh, in the appeal of this big consolidated exporters case. They brought her back to testify again, and um, the defense attorney was irritating her. Right, this is a guy named Edwin Grace. He was uh, Al Capone's attorney for many years out of out of uh, out of the South. And uh, he was attacking her in the way that defense attorneys often tried to undermine her, which is by suggesting that she hadn't she hadn't found these solutions by any kind of scientific method. Maybe she had been, you know, told some kind of inside information, or maybe she was just making it up, or maybe maybe one of the words would have multiple meanings. Um, and uh, and she just got sick of of it, and she she asked the judge for a blackboard, and. Uh, the judge had the bailiff wheel in a blackboard, and she started diagramming <laughs> the codes on this blackboard in the middle in the middle of this court of uh, you know this trial of gangsters. And she essentially, I mean, it's it's it so funny to me and cool because it harkens back to her earlier career as a school teacher. Yep. She essentially turned uh, you know a criminal trial a trial of organized crime figures into a classroom. And by the end of her brief demonstration, the the defense attorneys were mumbling that they they had had quite enough of this uh, this blackboard uh, uh, hullabaloo. And so her fame was relatively short lived because for the five or six years of World War II, she never talked about what she did. So essentially, she vanished from the public scene because she was pulled into the kind of the secret world of a little more organized intelligence and that that had to be difficult for her later on again watching william right get all the credit for the nsa and having rooms and buildings named after him but to her credit she never spoke of what she did during the war and the documents themselves about her 
were only declassified after she died. So she never right. got that credit. I think at the time, uh, in the 1930s, the late 1930s, when she shifted to secret work, she was grateful for the lack of the spotlight because she really hated most of the publicity that she got at the time um, because it created problems for her. Um, it created problems in terms of uh, she had to deal with the jealousy of, of male colleagues in other law enforcement agencies who would work on a case. Elizabeth would get the front page headline and she would have to write, you know, there are all kinds of letters in her files of the marshal where she's just writing to, uh, you know, police inspectors and apologizing for the fact that she's getting coverage. Um, but, yeah, I think later in her life it did great on her that, um, that the work that she did in World War II was sort of suppressed and that, and that somebody else took credit for it and, and, and uh, we'll was, it. was associated <laughs> with it in the, in the public eye, which we can talk about. Yeah, and, and I think that even more so, and a lot of the listeners will understand this, is that her primary focus, unlike her husband, William, who, who looked at foreign power code breaking with you know, purple and other things, was she was doing counterintelligence work. You know, her main purpose was to hunt for Nazi spies, not only here in the United States, but also throughout the entirety of the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, well, she was a pioneer of counterintelligence, I think. I mean, she was really doing counterintelligence before the FBI uh, was doing counterintelligence. I mean, she was doing uh, – her, her rum work was classic counterintelligence. Who's saying what to whom? You know, lighting up the, the darkened network. Um, and she got really good at that so that at the dawn of World War II, uh, when those skills were needed to light up networks of Nazi spies, she was ready to go. Um, and she had this team at the Coast Guard that she had created in 1931 and, and trained and built and nurtured. Uh, and it was just ready to go to do this, uh, do this work of trying to find Nazi spies. And, and you, you hinted uh, at someone who had to really suck up his chauvinism uh, and, and deal with her, J. Edgar Hoover. And, and don't get mad at me out there, for those of you that think J. Edgar Hoover is the greatest thing that ever happened. There's well-documented stories of Hoover just basically pushing any female agents out of the FBI and not another one being hired until after he died. Um, but Elizabeth was his only out at this point. You know, you know he, his only opportunity to get the FBI to learn code-breaking was for Hoover himself to say, damn it, give me Elizabeth Friedman. <laughs> Yeah, he really, he really had no choice. Uh, so, you know, Hoover in 1940 began dispatching FBI agents into South America for the first time. For the first time, he had the authority to operate, um, to do counterintelligence outside of United States borders. He started dispatching FBI guys uh, into South American countries. Uh, they were not effective. They had a lot of problems because they got off the plane in South America and they looked like FBI guys. And they didn't speak Spanish. They didn't speak or <laughs> Portuguese if they're in Brazil. Well, there, there's a famous story yeah. of, of a guy who was posted to Brazil. He had taken a Spanish language course at FBI in New York. He, you know, he got to Brazil and he was disappointed to find out that the, the <laughs> language in Brazil is Portuguese. Um, so these guys were not going to be able to, you know, uh, to light up the Nazi spy networks with sort of classic techniques of developing confidential informants. That sort of thing. They really needed to be able to read the thoughts of of the spies. They needed code breaking. They needed to be able to uh, intercept the radio messages and solve them. The problem was 
the FBI didn't have a code-breaking muscle at that point. Um, this was 1940. All they, all they really had was uh, the technical laboratory, which was more of a crime lab. Right. I mean, this famous crime lab, right? Hoover yeah. brings in Absolutely. fingerprints and a lot of the digital forensics, that stuff that all, all the things that make the FBI the greatest law enforcement agency in the world today was because of J. Edgar Hoover's leadership. But it wasn't doing intel work. It was doing catching bad guy work. Sure. I mean, they were justifiably proud of the laboratory for what it did. But it wasn't a code-breaking team. Um, and they really needed code-breaking. And, so, uh, and so they went to the Coast Guard and, and to Elizabeth. And, uh, and that's when Elizabeth started monitoring these clandestine Nazi radio circuits and giving the decrypts uh, to the FBI, not just to the FBI, but also to uh, British intelligence, to the Army, and to the Navy. And, and you know, and, and we can get into some of the specifics uh, about South America, and we will, uh, but the wrap-up Hoover, uh, the ending is promising. She actually does some pretty extraordinary work in South America, yeah. but gets absolutely no credit for it because Hoover warps the record completely and gives all the credit to the FBI. Yeah, well, I, I think Hoover did this to a lot of different yeah. a- agencies and people over the years. I mean, he was a chauvinist, but I think I think there were all there were all kinds of people who hated Hoover, yeah, no, men and men and women. He absolutely was a, sh- a chauvinist. Um, but yeah, I mean, Hoover was um, a brilliant publicist. You know, among all the other things, he was he was very gifted at telling the FBI story uh, in the press in a way that would reflect well in the FBI increase the power of the FBI and and increase his own power. And that's what he did um, at the end of the Nazi spy hunt. So basically, you know, in late 1944, after, um, you know, Elizabeth and her Coast Guard team had monitored all of these circuits and helped uh, to interrupt and and destroy them, neutralizing this this threat, uh, once the spy rings were smashed, Hoover stood up and held up his hand and said uh, uh, to Americans, the FBI saved you from this dangerous Nazi spy invasion. And, and he did it across all axes of media. He, he filmed a, um, uh, a TV, a film newsreel that was distributed and shown to, uh, to army soldiers, which you can, you can find on YouTube. If you go to YouTube and type in Hoover Battle of the United States, you can see the 15-minute video that he shot you know, basically claiming credit for the um, for the clandestine war in South America for smashing the Nazi spy rings. He he wrote um, first person articles in popular magazines w- how the Nazi spy invasion was smashed by J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, it would be unthinkable today. Right? It would right. be like James Comey writing a first person article in BuzzFeed or something. It just <laughs> it just would not happen, right? It was a completely different era, but that was Hoover, and um, you know the be- the. the History isn't just wit- written by the winners. It's written by the best publicists and the winning team. And that was Hoover. He was just really good at it. And so the result was that uh, he got the credit for it and people didn't know about Elizabeth's role. Well, and, and a lot of the role was things that she couldn't talk about even if she wanted to. I mean, the Coast Guard team under her had broken multiple Enigma variants. Mm-hmm. You know, like everyone wants to give credit to Bletchley Park or, you know, or to William Friedman or... Uh, you know, to the polls obviously started everything. But the, the Coast Guard team, a very small code-breaking team, broke multiple variants of the Enigma by themselves, including the one that really allows the United States to push a, a South American country, Argentina, the last hope of the Germans in South America to break off relations completely with the Germans. 
I mean, that, that to me, I, you know, it, it's, it's multiple levels of reasons she can't talk about things. Right. We're just dr- dr- enigma, code breaking, counterintelligence. You know, Germany and South America were all just. Hoover didn't care. It's like I'm taking credit for all this stuff. Well, yeah, well, yeah, he he had the power to yeah. speak publicly about these things. That she did not have that power. She could not contravene um, the secrecy rules. You know, I mean, all of her stuff was stamped top secret ultra. So when you, when you you know, I found her, um, her the diary of her unit, the technical history of the Coast Guard cryptanalytic unit during World War II. It's in the National Archives. It's 329 pages. The cover says Top Secret Ultra, and every page inside is stamped Top Secret Ultra. For, for our listeners, they may be interested to know that uh, Hoover wasn't the, the only massive personality that Freeman ran into. Bill Donovan at the yeah. OSS was also somebody. OSS was stood up. They had no crypto unit themselves. Who else to turn to? But Elizabeth Friedman. Yeah, it was, it was another one of those uh, moments, you know, send in Mrs. Friedman. When it was somebody is kind of unprepared for uh, a challenge or needs a puzzle solved, uh, send for Mrs. Friedman. So they sent for her. She spent uh, two and a half weeks um, right after Pearl Harbor setting up the first permanent cryptographic section for um, the coordinator of information, Bill Donovan. Um, OSS didn't even exist yeah. yet. But... Um, Donovan needed a secure way of communicating with uh, with people in the field. He didn't know anything about uh, code, codes, ciphers, um, and Elizabeth Friedman went and, and set up all this stuff for him. Uh, she hated Bill Donovan. Could, oh, so could she not, didn't could have not a stand particularly him. high opinion <laughs> of Old Wild Bill. Uh, some of the the stuff you include in the book are, are some of the very very politically correct, tactful letters. <laughs> That she wrote, and we read, read between the lines, and she yeah. just wanted just to take him to task. Uh, she, she, she disliked Donovan for a different reason that, than she disliked Hoover. I, th- I think I think that she recognized that Hoover, you know, was was a very formidable guy, co- competent in a lot of ways. I think she just thought Donovan was a clown, and, yeah, a uh, buffoon is what I buffoon. would yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and she's not the only one to think that. But um, I, I would love to have you know the like. Elizabeth Friedman tactful translator and look at some of those what they would be <laughs> the anger translator the anger yeah. translator what they would be if she really got the chance to say what she wanted to yeah. because it's just it's so well written in you know saying so much without saying anything that would get her fired or thrown in prison but absolutely uh, it's pretty glorious um, for those of you that know a lot about Bill Donovan uh, and his personality especially the beginning because he really didn't know what he was doing well he I mean yeah. what what upset her was that um he he seemed to insist that he knew what he was doing when yeah. she could tell that that he didn't, and he would contravene her recommendations. Um, he didn't give her the respect uh, that one should accord to an expert, especially somebody who's brought in to do a favor for you. Essentially, it that, seems even Hoover grudgingly gave her respect. He kind of said, "Oh, fine." Well, yeah. Hoover Hoover greatly admired William. Yeah, that was something he he held William in very high esteem. There's a story about Hoover, um, he would go to Harvey's restaurant. He had a table there with Clyde Tolson. And uh, when he arrived, there would be a bottle of wine on this table. And he had a ritual where he would go around the restaurant. um, And if he saw somebody who was important or somebody that he admired, he would pour them a glass of wine. And there's a story about him going over to William Friedman, who also ate at Harvey's sometimes. William Friedman looks up 
there's the director of the FBI holding a bottle of wine. Hoover pours William a bottle of wine. You know, that meant something. Yeah. Let's wrap this up by talking a little bit about recognition because it, it's, it seems to be coming, albeit slowly. I mean, the book, this book will hopefully make a difference. Um, it, it, again, it's good to see these kinds of stories being written for a wider audience than sometimes gets its due. I mean, there are mm. all sorts of books about codes and ciphers that aren't going to be read by kind of random Americans. They're kind of within the community. And, and this certainly walks that that fine line that we try to do between being readable and being right. Uh, and and ha- I'm happy to say, and this is as much of a glowing review as you'll get from me, that uh, it's both readable and right. And the right part matters to us a lot, right? Because we, there's so many authors out there who don't have a hand or a knowledge about this world, and they can write very well, but they write garbage very well. Um, you obviously did a ton of research about this beforehand, so it's good to see that there'll be people in the middle of you know, random places that have never picked up a book about intelligence want to know about this woman and learn a little bit about the world that we live in. Um, but it seems like this is coming at just a great time because there's so much of, of history being rewritten to include women's roles that have been written out to begin with, right? So it's kind of a rewriting of history, everything from you know, hidden figures to uh, some of the um, the broader understanding of some of the women that were integral in intelligence operations, especially during World War II time period, during right. the OSS. Um, did you time this well is really my long-winded way of asking this question. Are you getting that kind of response from people who are eager to see a story that should have been written decades ago, but because of the environment, the woman's role was written out of it, and now you can actually tell it the right way? I do think that this is a moment where people are realizing that important pieces of our history have been missed or overlooked. Um, and the thing is, when you, when you go back and you look at the documents, you look at the primary sources, um, you see that women are there, um, which is one reason why I, I, I find this debate about um, men and women and technical abilities and women in tech and um, very frustrating because you um, it tends to be about these biological arguments and I think it's um, it's just not relevant because history shows that women have been there all along. Right. Um, you know, it's 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 about writing a more accurate version of the story. And I think that, um, you know, as I spent time with the Freedmen's letters and the Freedmen's writings and and just having kind of the Freedmen's kicking around in my head for for three years, um, you, you can't do that without, you know, without noticing and paying a lot of attention to the fact that the Freedmen's were world historical sticklers for fact you know they cared uh, more than anything about getting things right and um, you know sometimes to their detriment they cared about it so much that it uh, it hurt them sometimes and I and I I um, I do feel like um, doing the research and writing the book was a chance to um, to give Elizabeth 
the recognition that um, that she definitely deserves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that I, I don't have kids yet, but if I do or when I do, um, I almost I kind of cringe when people talk about giving little girls these roles, like Grace Hopper and Virginia Hall and Sally Ride and Elizabeth Friedman. These aren't people I want to be role models for my daughter necessarily. I want them to be role models for my sons too. Yeah. I mean, and I think that that's where starting to bring the lives of these extraordinary people to the forefront and then kind of them being women just by happenstance and being able to do the same jobs or maybe even the jobs better. I mean, when I talk about Elizabeth Freeman, I'm a firm believer that she was better than William at code breaking. And then, you know, NSA, a lot of the top people will be like, yeah, you're, you're probably right. You know, and that, that, should be a lesson to everybody. This is not just, I want my daughter to grow up to be like Elizabeth Freeman. I want my son to grow up to be like Elizabeth Freeman, you know? And so I did see a lot of that, you know, that's why your story, the Delta story really resonated because I see cool. that stuff all the time, you know, and to me that, that is why bringing some of these, these characters back uh, into history, right? I mean, people have been, it's not that they were ignored, they were written out of it, right? you know, and, and trying to make the record straight so that we actually can get beyond you know, picking and choosing our role models to saying, like, well, there's a whole lot of people we can look at to be something special one day. I do think Elizabeth got her revenge a little bit on, <laughs> on Hoover in the end because yeah. she, she uh, you know, when she was helping William annotate his collection, she wrote some things in the index cards that, that pointed me uh, and pointed other people toward, um, toward the records in the National Archives. And you can read these things today and they're still like little slivers of glass inserted into the <laughs> library. They still have the power to draw blood. That, to me, is very cool and very inspiring. Well, Jason is the author of The Woman Who Smashed Codes, a true story of love, spies, and the unlikely heroine who outwitted America's enemies. Thank you so much for taking the time oh, to talk thank to you. us here at SpyCast. We really enjoyed that it. That was so much fun, Vince. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. We'd like to thank ZipRecruiter for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free, by going to ziprecruiter.com slash spycast. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.